Hello, and welcome to another episode of Plain Rainbows. Before we begin, this live stream may discuss trauma of all sorts to include all types of abuse. Viewers and listeners may find it unsettling and triggering. The guests on our live streams reflect a diverse set of values, morals, and ethics that may not reflect the morals, values, and ethics of the Misfit Amish. If this live stream causes you distress, please seek support from your trusted folks and qualified mental health professionals as needed. With that being said, I'd like to welcome Sam, who is going to be my co-host for this special broadcast. Good morning, hello, Sam. Hello. I'm so excited to be here. Good morning. Mm. And now our guest of honor, Seth. Hello. I'm so excited to see both of you. So... Would you both like to introduce yourselves? Who's first? Oh, you, sir. Oh, gods. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Sam. I go by he, they pronouns, uh, Mexican-American, born and raised in Provo, Utah. Uh, I was raised in the Mormon church and then went to conversion therapy. And when that did not work, I left. And now I help other conversion therapy survivors heal from the trauma. Thank you, Sam. And what about you, Seth? Hello, uh, my name is Seth Showalter. I am the author of a book called Finally Free, A Surrender to Authenticity. I grew up in Northwest Missouri. And let's see here. Um, I went very involved in the church. And through that experience, um, I went through a lot of stuff. And from that experience, I actually worked through my trauma and actually am now a therapist and work to strive to help others deal with their own issues and their own trauma. And I go by he, him pronouns. Thank you for that. Now, with that being said, just, just, I got the honor of reading Seth's book, even though it hasn't been released yet. And I just have questions. And I invited Seth here because I think it's important to talk about the things, the themes that I found in the book, the themes of coercive control, the themes of all of the things that I, I wrote. I wrote a review for this book. I'm just waiting for it to come out so that like we can we can share it with the world, right? Because I want to share that review with the world. So you go into detail about how you, your background and how you arrived at this facility. And the first question that I have is, did your church or your parents' church have any participation in selecting the facility you went to, to become not gay? So I actually didn't know the answer to this question. So when I received these questions via email, I went to breakfast with my parents this morning and specifically asked them about this because I didn't know. Because when they made the decision or we as a family made the decision for me to go into a facility to receive conversion therapy, it was kind of put on my parents to, to choose where I, where I went. And from my parents, my church was in no way involved. Uh, this was completely based upon what they found uh, through their insurance. Because one of the complicated issues in all of this is that I didn't just pursue conversion therapy. I pursued substance use treatment that also provided conversion therapy. So we had to find a very special program that provided both forms of treatment. And so the church was not involved in that decision-making process. Thank you for that. So was mm -hmm. the facility, like what qualified this facility to provide conversion therapy? I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> you don't know? You got, Sam, you got anything to say about that? <laughs> well, I, I was, it was interesting because when you said that, I was like, for the first time I realized that's almost like, and what makes this facility qualified to officially torture people, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, I, I just want to know, was there anything that qualified them? Especially when the World Health Organization considers it a form of, of torture and, and it, it, it's not even a valid form of therapy. I, I think that's a great question because I think that that juxtaposes like what people think conversion therapy is versus in reality what it is. 
Yes. Thank you for that. Did you have any questions to ask, Sam? I mean, a little bit later I did, but I, I think it was interesting because when you talked about how you went to the facility for specific things, it just reminds me how there's so many different ways conversion therapy can happen. And kind of like I just alluded to, people hear conversion therapy and all they think of is electroshock therapy. And a lot of other people will think, oh, maybe it's just some type of addiction or maybe it's just something that you get groomed into or maybe it's a family problem, right? There's like all these ideas about what you know makes you gay. And so I, I'm curious, do, were your parents thinking that like the cause of your homosexuality was like an addiction and maybe that's what led them there? It, and I just am, am curious if you didn't even know that or if you did, how do you even get access to those memories when it's often repressed? It's a great question. And I, I can't get into my parents' minds. So I have to, again, everything we're talking about is, is hypothetical here. It's hypothesis. So I don't, I don't know the answer specifically. And, and also notice how delicate I'm being as I talk about these issues, because I love my parents and my parents still are, are very supportive of me, supportive of me in many, many ways. And so I have to really be delicate about all of this. I wanted to share the story to talk about what happened, but doing it in a respectful and and in in a way that wasn't, you know, saying this is all on them because I asked to go to this facility. I wasn't forced into this program. Now, when I went to them, I, my life was out of control. I was drinking a lot. I was making unwise decisions. I was doing things that I shouldn't be doing. And I was living out of, out of line from what I knew and what I was raised to believe based upon my faith. So I can only imagine what they thought was causing my homosexual feelings or same-sex attraction feelings, however we're wording that based upon the vernacular or the community that you're within. So I don't know. I, I, I'm thinking that based upon their perspective, they would have, have assumed uh, that it was because of uh, the alcohol. However, I have an older brother who also came out as gay before this experience. So this gets even more complicated. And I know that when he came out to them, they spent a lot of time I mean, and I mean a lot of time grieving, crying, really struggling with what this meant for them. And, and I think on, on some levels, they felt like they were failing as parents and I, you know, and how difficult that is, because I don't think anyone uh, looks forward it, that is raised in this in a faith tradition. This is not what they are looking forward to or, or expecting. Right. I don't think that's right. But I think that the way that the many faith traditions are are organized and practiced kind of lays this out as something that should never happen. So when it does happen, people don't know how to handle it. So they really don't know how to how to move forward. Does that make I, sense? That that makes absolute sense. I totally understand that. I'd like to back up just a second because I did have another thought while Sam was talking about the whole, um, how can we define conversion therapy? What is conversion therapy? I think we need to first define it. Either of you want to jump in? Yeah, um, I can jump in on that one. Uh, conversion therapy, at least in the research, is typically referred to using the term SOGICE, which uh, is S-O-G-I-C-E. It stands for Sexual Orientation or Gender Identity Change Efforts. And I think it has to be that broad because, again, people just think electroshock therapy and that's done, and so it never happens anymore. But when you go as broad as people are going broad and trying to change us, it, it is any type of effort whatsoever. And, and so that can now include 
therapy, that it can conclude uh, bullying, corrective rape, praying over someone, trying to cast the spirit out, like all of these different ways that people can try to change who we are. If there's any attempt or any behavior where the goal is to remove your hetero, is to give you heteronormativity with your identity or with your sexual orientation, then by definition, that would be conversion therapy. Thank you for that. And do you want to add to that, Seth, or did you have any thoughts on that? No, I mean, that's spot on. I mean, I, there, nope, that's, that's the definition. That's, that's it, right? Like, actually, I actually think that's the power of Seth's story is because it does rub against that narrative of, hey, this is conversion therapy too. It can just be as innocuous as going to uh, a clinic for substance abuse. And there, if that substance abuse program assumes being gay or queer in any sense of the word is wrong, then that is an element of conversion therapy and you are a conversion therapy survivor. And it really allows people to lean into this was wrong and it's not my fault and I'm not alone. I would agree. I also think it's important to have the hard conversations. And so in the book, he talks about his journal. He shares some of his journal from the stay at this facility, which I think is incredibly moving. But it's also displaying themes of inner conflict, distress, internalized homophobia, um, spiritual abuse, addiction as a coping skill, and all of that. Like, do you have anything to say about that, Seth? I mean, I wrote like a 300 page book. I have a lot to say. Uh, <laughs> You're kidding. I could talk, I could, I could talk for hours. Uh, so, I mean, do you want me to break each of those down? I mean, the, the first thing I want to mention is the internal conflict. And I want to note that if you read my book, you're going to probably want to chuck it across the room at some point because it's infuriating because you literally read one day and I'm like, I don't want to be gay. I am 100% committed to God and, and really carrying this out to where I'm not going to do anything. And, and I'm, I'm going to commit myself to celibacy and I'm going to follow these steps and God is great. All the glory. I'm doing what I need to. And then the next day, I'm like, nope, I am gay, I am proud, and I don't believe any of this, and I'm struggling. And like this literally happens all the way up until the last day that I leave the program. Like it mm -hmm. never stops. So when we talk about this internal conflict and really what's involved in that, I mean, it's the essence of conversion therapy because it's what it does to the individual. It puts them in a state where they really don't know where to turn and it causes them to trust their own intuition and their own ability to trust in their own decisions and their own way of believing in themselves. So my book really highlights that internal conflict. So, I mean, what do you guys think of that? I would absolutely agree. Like that was the very first thing. That was the first thought that I had after reading your book. The amount of sheer amount of internal conflict that came out was incredibly moving. And and the amount of distress and how you internalized all of these messages, the conflicting messages that you were getting. Because wasn't there somebody, um, I forget the name, was it Melissa? Am I wrong? You mean the sexual assault therapist that they had me go see? Yes. That one. That one. Yeah. Yes. Do you want to talk about her for a minute? Uh, well, yeah. So I, okay. So first of all, I think they had me go see her because of my journal entries, by the way. So they were reading my journal entries every single night. I do want to just mention that. So Part of being in the program is they had to, you had to leave a journal. You had to have a journalist in being in the program and they read it every single night. So it was literally kind of my way of speaking back to the staff. Um, 
and I started complaining about a lot of stuff that they were doing. <laughs> and I mean, what a nice violation of privacy I don't sense here. I have to say that. So I they so that that was happening. And then I also had struggled with this experimentation when I was in high school that I didn't know because of my religious upbringing and not being able to really trust in myself and my own decisions. I didn't know if that was regular experimentation or if I had been actually sexually assaulted and I didn't have a decision in that matter. And I started to doubt that within myself. And I started to process that in my journals. And I think I even brought it up in some of the meetings, but as a result of that, they did have me go see a sexual assault therapist and her name was Melissa. Now, Melissa was clearly vetted by the NH staff because she had all of the right words and the right vernacular. However, she said some things that just kind of went against what they were trying to, to preach and teach you know like trust in yourself and and believe in yourself in your own decisions and it's like wait a second that goes against everything i'm being taught over here and it, it really made things really conflicting and i i try to bring that up in the book may i ask mary what your opinions were of melissa i think that melissa was a very interesting person that you experienced because on one hand yes she was vetted by the staff but it was almost like she had this whole idea of like she had more of a belief in bodily autonomy than what what she should have had to be like doing what she was trying to do yeah and i and i also kind of felt like when they brought in there's this narrative and i'm going to go here because i've been told it there's this narrative that you know being um, raped or sexually abused as a child um, or even experimenting like can really um, change people's sexual orientation. And so what the NH staff, and I think what you were alluding to by talking about Melissa, this is the message that I got, is that they were trying to make it into your experimentation, which is often seen as like normal childhood development sometimes from the sounds of it. That's what I observed and and comprehended and then they try to rewrite the narrative for you to where you are only experiencing homosexual attraction because of your encounter as a teenager yeah well they needed an explanation right they had to ha they had to blame something uh-huh and and then this is the next route they went down um and I, I'm curious if Sam can kind of speak into a little bit of how that works with a lot of other uh, people in regards to trends and things of that nature. Yeah, it, it was definitely going on my mind. It, as soon as you talked about how there was this this push and pull of like, I'm so committed and then like, but no, I trust myself, I'm gay, right? And when I read parts of your book, I just, it was very familiar right? Because that was my experience too. And so it, it just seemed obvious. But as you were describing it now, I realized from the outside looking in, if there's no compassion, if there's only analytical thinking, they may be seeing someone who's not committed, someone who's wishy-washy, because they're not understanding the trauma behind all of that. And suddenly I just got hit with all of these memories of, this is so analogous to psychology of the past where we didn't believe that women could ever possibly be victims of sexual assault from their family. So clearly they're lying. And so we create this diagnosis of hysteria and the explanation is, well, their womb is traveling, right? And that must be really what's going on when Occam's razor would just be like, or maybe they're just traumatized and you know, that's, that's trauma, right? No, we need an explanation for something because clearly the victims cannot be telling the truth that doesn't fit our narrative. We don't understand that and we don't want to hear that. So we have to come up with all of these ideas as an explanation rather than just listening. And it, it really hit me that like, that's where we are here, but with 
homosexuality or any type of queer experience because there's no simple answer that people are willing to accept of this is just a normal part of the human condition. So we have to make our own conclusions rather than listen to the people who are directly in front of us. And so that that's really hitting me right now that that's why conversion therapy is so broad because it's the core of bad therapy, which is you don't listen to your client. You think you know better than the client. And so you say, I think this is what's going on. You need to confirm to what I'm telling you instead of being like, oh, perhaps I should be patient centered and say, what do you think? How does this make you feel? Perhaps I should actually give you the freedom to, you know, flex your own muscles and believe your own truth. No, no, you're just, your womb is moving. That's, that's really what's going on. Thank you, Sam. That's exactly what it is, in my opinion. Not that it matters for much, but, you know, I, I mean, I was assigned to AFAB at birth, so my opinion doesn't hold much water in many places, but, you know, it is exactly what it is. And it's also, like, it completely disregards the fact that people get sexually abused and raped all of the time who like they are still straight or they're still attracted to people of the same gender as their offender so like it completely disregards that and it's just like creating this mass hysteria of blah 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 and it's kind of harmful to people as a whole because it devalues you and it devalues your human experience and it tells you you're unworthy. And when you've heard and you've been conditioned to believe that you're unworthy and that you're wrong for existing the way that you are, like, how does that, like, affect your mental health at that point? Anybody? I think, in my mind, this is why the deconstruction space on TikTok or when you talk about religious trauma is so analogous to what goes on in conversion therapy. Because when you have a high demand religion that says, believe us, not you. We're right, you're wrong. Believe your intuition the way we want you to, right? Like it's this very coercive situation and that's exactly what's going on here with conversion therapy. And so I think that's why there's just so many overlaps with what we're talking about and religious trauma. Coercive control, pretty much what it boils down to. Yeah. Do you want to expand on that? Well, I, I mean, I certainly can. <laughs> I, so <laughs> coercive control, this idea that we have to remain or not. Well, let me back up. Coercive control, when other individuals, whether they be within a religious organization or whether they be part of some form of uh, conversion therapy program, often though, the two go hand in hand. But, you know, when we look at those two things, uh, it's about exerting control over another person uh, in order to, I have to think through my words here, in order to manipulate some form of outcome that they are seeking at the expense of the other person, oftentimes resulting in pain, suffering, or hurt in some way, shape, or form, typically done in a way in which the person hurts themselves. That's how, it, that's how I've experienced it, and I think it happens both within religious uh, foundations as well as it happens in conversion therapy. I just want to point out that it's not that like I think that abuse only happens within religious foundations. I talk about religious trauma because I know religious trauma intimately. I don't know what it looks like when I go to a yoga group and experience trauma there. I, I don't know that, so I can't speak to that. And I think it's sometimes really important that people understand that I'm not saying that you're a bad person for being religious. I'm saying that there are these elements that people have used repetitively to harm other people. Abuse is something that happens within groups of people around the world. No one is exempt. Utopia doesn't exist. It's not real. 
it's a made up reality in our heads. I'm just saying. So with that being said, Seth, why did you write this book and publish it? Well, so I'm going to share a little bit. I'm going to share a few things here. So I have been wanting to write this book since I was in the facility. All right. So when I was in the facility per, from pretty much day one, I knew that this was a story I wanted documented. It's why I wrote a journal, because when it was all said and done, that journal, when I typed it out, was 300 pages long. All right. Now, I have sat on that journal for almost 10 to 11 years because working through it became so incredibly difficult. Every single time that I tried to go through that journal, I couldn't get through it. And I literally worked with an English teacher at one point to try to help me with it. I worked with a few other author friends of mine who could try to help me work through it. And it just was, it was never enough until I finally was in a position financially uh, where I could hire an editor. And thank goodness I found the editor I did. But the question here is why, why did I write this book? And the truth of the matter is I wrote this because I believe that this is the type of story that needs to be heard. Because if I had heard a story like this when I was considering the decisions that I was back then in 2012, or well, actually at that point it was 2011 because I started the program January 1st of 2012. I like, I don't think that I would have, I don't, I don't think that I would have made the decision that I, that I did. I, I felt so isolated and so alone in my experience. And I felt like no one else understood that no one else got what I was going through. And so I want other people to be able to, to know that they're not alone and to be able to relate to these experiences. But then I also am expanding this, this, uh, this lens a little bit. Because I also want this book to not only speak to the LGBTQIA community, I want this book to speak to any marginalized community that's dealing with coercive control. Because when we look at coercive control, what we see is it resulting in doubting oneself and not knowing where to turn. And my book highlights this in vivid contrast. And it brings up a lot of issues that a lot of people can relate to. And then lastly, I wrote this book because I needed to speak my truth to the church uh, and, and really the, the foundation that I was raised within because so many people that I know and that I love and that I care about hold fast to belief systems without really taking into consideration the impact that it has on others. And I wanted this book to serve as a way of actually seeing that impact and understanding the influence of what these things actually do on the ground level. And how they can change somebody's life. Correct. So what goals you, you just kind of told me what goals you have with this book. Thank you for that. That's, that's important. Well, I, Go ahead. Well, you asked me about goals and I can go a little bit more into goals because like those are the overarching vision goals okay. and I'm trying really hard to have realistic expectations right now. So I'm, I'm working on realistic expectations and really my goal when it's all said and done is not to sell a thousand copies. That would be great. I would love it. I'd be thrilled. I'd be happy. But my goal is that this reaches at least one person and helps them. That is the entire purpose. If my book helps one person, I have done my job. And it okay. was worth every dollar. Okay. So I'm just going to say it did help me in the aspect of like it gave um, language to some of the things that I've experienced that I didn't quite have language because that's another thing that can happen is when we experience so much adversity, sometimes we don't have language to describe it, especially when you're somebody who speaks English as a second language. That's important. So your goals, your goals already met. I'm just telling you that. I felt seen. I felt like I was less alone in the world just reading this book. Well, thank you. 
And I'm thrilled to hear that it had that impact because that's what I'm aiming for. Yeah. So thank you. Like, really, thank you for writing this book. And then I, I know I listened to a course that you developed about this book, and I know we kind of don't disagree. We disagree on some things, but let's talk about the we course. <laughs> we do. We do disagree a little bit on the course. That's okay. <laughs> but the only reason that you know about the course is I took a really big risk and did it on TikTok Live, which was terrifying. I actually, but let's talk about the course. So I developed a course that literally will walk individuals through the book. Now, granted, you have to do a lot of reading in two weeks. I literally guide people through the book in a two-week class. But you read eight, eight days a day, uh, except for the one day you read the entire introduction and one day you read the entire epilogue. And then every other day you're reading eight days a day. And then what I do with the class is I pull out major themes that were covered in those days. And then I try to speak clinically with a background and understanding as to what are the actual impacts of these beliefs, asking the bigger questions as to what does this mean and how do we move forward uh, given this and what information would be helpful for us to know in order to actually make an impact and help other people that, you know, like I think so often we live in autopilot without really thinking about the impact. And so I try to, with my course, just, we just, we just shatter that, that ceiling a little bit. And uh, I come in pretty strong, but I come in strong with a purpose and a mission and I'm a little long-winded, so it, it's fun. So I I have to say, like, some of the content, like, this is where we disagree uh, on some of the content, uh, and that would be, like, the idea of forgiveness as a healing mechanism. Like, I, I don't necessarily agree or agree that people need that necessarily, because I've known people who went on to live meaningful lives. They, they practice what they call unforgiveness, and so for them, that work for them. And I feel like it's not my place to tell people that they have to forgive. That's, that's the reason I asked the questions about that. But I also think that when you are trying to reach a specific target audience, and if your target audience is people who are actively in the faith of Christianity, then you probably need to address forgiveness. Like, I, I know we disagree on some of the content, but that's that's the big one about forgiveness. If I don't address the issue of forgiveness, I will be viewed a specific way by the Christian audience. Uh-huh. It, it's literally damage control, Mary. Yes. It, it's there's, there's a level of it that's damage control, <laughs> but there's also, an, there's another level of it that clinically speaking, as a licensed therapist... Like yeah. I believe in, in taking steps forward and actually moving forward and, and, and letting go of things um, in a way that is constructive and helpful. And yes, I could have used a different word other than forgiveness. Forgiveness may have been the wrong word to use, but given the Christian oh. audience, I, mm -mm. what was I to do? No, no, you no. Know? Like I'm, I'm trying to acknowledge that you're using the Christian language and you're also using the victim mentality language that also needs to be addressed because, you know. I would love to highlight that this right here, just this topic of discussion and the feelings and emotions that are coming up are perfectly in line with what happens whenever you get conversion therapy survivors together. That is one topic that I know I don't want to ever go to unless it's at the beginning of our meetings and we have lots of time to have big emotions and then we have a planned decompression moment where we focus on our breathing at the end because no <laughs> one can agree on forgiveness when it comes to conversion therapy survivors. We have our own ethos, we have our own perspectives. So I think it's fabulous and wonderful that you mentioned it and that Mary, that you disagree with it because that is, this is exactly what happens in conversion therapy survivor spaces 
And I think this is another way that people can recognize they're not alone because Seth's way of healing isn't the only way to heal. It's a way to heal. Right. And I'm not even saying Seth is wrong for employing forgiveness. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that I value people's bodily autonomy and personhood. And for me, valuing that means recognizing that there's more than one way to have peace after experiencing conversion therapy. Does that make sense, Seth? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the as a therapist, I have a sign in my office that says healing is not linear because healing really looks different for every single person and it does not go on a straight line. So it, we have to mold that healing process to every single person. Now, there are some common themes. There's some common, common elements but mm-hmm. at the end of the day, that healing process may truly look different from person to person. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. And so when you say healing, what do you mean by healing? Please define that. <laughs> you, you would ask me that question. So what I mean by healing is, is res, restore, restorative um okay restoration of one's own inner turmoil not restoration with other people necessarily but restoration of our own inner feelings and and difficulties so that we can move forward at a level to where we're not constantly on edge and feeling like we need to get revenge that that's what i mean by healing as long like getting the the chip on our shoulder off essentially okay so often i've heard this saying about healing this idea of like you know we have to be restored to you know a a place where we can navigate through life as if it never happened what do you say about the people who experience severe childhood trauma repetitively over decades and and like throughout all of their formative years they don't have a place to be restored to how do you right. how do you navigate that? You develop. I mean, there's not an easy answer to this, um, but eventually, through the support of others and through the support of therapy, what I do believe is we can create our own new reality. Um, in which case, there is a new freedom um, that is found. In which case, we get to define what our future will look like without our past defining it for us. That's the truth. And the ways in which we get there are often very different. And that's okay. We don't have to exactly employ the same strategies. What works for me might not work for Seth. Let's just be real. But I do have another question. Like, I'm not saying this is going to happen. But what would be the ideal outcome of publishing your book and developing this course? The ideal outcome? Yeah, in a perfect world. Let's pretend the world is perfect just for a moment. I mean, I have big dreams, okay? but I'm trying to have realistic expectations. So you're really challenging me right now. So I'm trying to have realistic expectations and this is like asking me not to. So the, the big dream here would be that I, that it, it goes somewhere. Um, that this, this makes something, uh, that this, you know, I hit some news stations, uh, and that not only that, but it launches my therapy practice and that I start getting the clients that really need the help and want the help. So are you allowed to dream big, Seth? Yes, I am. Of course I'm allowed, but I also know what's, (laughs) I also know the, the pain of having a really big dream and not getting it. So, you know, I think having realistic expectations is very healthy as we move forward, especially with a book that you're launching for the very first time. Now, if this was my fifth book, that would be a different story. 
Uh, but you know, it's not, it's my first. So, you know, well, I mean, you're also allowed to dream big and still set realistic expectation. I would argue that you can do both. Because the idea that we're allowed to dream big is, is kind of like important when we talk about shedding light on this kind of experience and, and what you went through. I think that for me, I would hope that like people would engage in your course. I would hope that people would buy your book. I would hope that people would contact you for speaking. It would really reach the most vulnerable people who are potentially in a position where they may be filled with like self-loathing. Like I can attest to like how much you can loathe yourself as a person when you're experiencing this and you feel like you're you're torn in a million different directions and there's no right way to go forward. People need to know they're not alone in that. So I hope for you and I believe you can do it. You're going to do it, right? Like you can do, you can do anything. I'm trying trying really hard with the marketing. I will say that I'm doing everything I know how. Yeah. Well, I already know. I already know of two people who said they were going to buy your book as soon as it comes out, just because of the review that I wrote for it. So, like, you know, that's how it's going to get around is people are going to talk to each other. They're going to share it with their friends. They're going to share it with their family. And and that's one of the biggest things about networking is sometimes, like, when we share things with our collective audiences, like, we're, we're very different here. Like, I was born Amish. Sam was with LDS, like the Mormons. Let me sin by saying that. Oops. <clears throat> I invited Satan into this live, didn't I? Yes, you did. And that's okay. You know, I actually have dreams and and hopes for Seth's book because as you were talking, it kind of helped me recognize that there's this coercive control that kind of creates people that are more prone to be victimized because they're used to not standing up for themselves. They're used to feeling like they're the ones who are wrong. And so in many ways, it, it occurred to me, you've almost kind of created a playbook for churches to recognize if you want to stop people from leaving the religion, you need to own the parts that have been coercive, the parts that are really not true to your message in the first place. Listen to how it's impacted someone where you're giving them two conflicted messages, listen to yourself, listen to your heart, but only do it our way. And if you were to take those parts out of your religion, they can, then it can thrive again. And they need to really listen to your story and almost use it as a playbook on what they shouldn't be doing and things that they should root out of their own culture so that they can get back to their roots of just spreading love. Yeah, and I really, I mean, that's, if once you get to the epilogue, it becomes pretty clear that that's what I'm, I mean, I, my epilogue speaks pretty direct to that message wholeheartedly so i actually have a whole call out to the church of what i'm really hoping that they get out of the book because i i i want them to understand uh and realize you know that this is a common experience for so many people that just made me wonder do you think that this is something of, that we could recommend to the parents of conversion therapy survivors so that they can know what their children have gone through? That's a really good question. And before I answer it, I'm curious on Mary's response. I think absolutely it could be helpful for the parents because parents could hear it directly from like somebody who was experiencing it. They could understand better, like, the inner conflict and how much like you can try and how much like you just feel like you have nowhere to go and you have nowhere to exist and you don't belong. The lack of connection. And I think for parents to really understand that is to, for them to be able to better recognize what their children faced and how maybe that can affect their relationship with their children today. So can I, I'm going to jump in on this. I think that 
uh, one of the things I, why I would recommend this for parents is because my parents who I love dearly. Okay. Like, I feel like I need to like reemphasize that. Like my parents did what they felt was right at the time. They did not force me into this program. I asked to go into this program. My life was out of control. I was making decisions that were not good for me. They did what they felt was right. They were following through with what I was asking for. So, you know, but the impact is, is still is just as severe. And, and so I want parents of, of children who've been through conversion therapy to actually be able to read how my parents kind of handled that process and then see how the impact that that had on me. I want them to actually see that whole follow through because I don't know if, if that's always seen. Oh, that. And another thing is how they portrayed your relationship with your parents in the book. Do you have a second to kind of like give a summary of that and explain why parents need to hear that? Why? Well, wait. Who which, who summarized my parents in the book? No, I'm saying like, can you summarize like somewhat of like the way that that you were manipulated? I would say that the the facility itself, the the counselors oh. there, they manipulated your perception of your parents to an extent. Yeah. So the facility needed a reason for me being gay first and foremost. They they needed a reason for that. So they were going along with Exodus, Exodus's material as well as focus on the family. I was actually going through a focus on the family textbook. It wasn't Exodus. It was focus on the family, which I thought was interesting. But yeah, I know, right? But, you know, they... Um, lots of Sorry. opinions there. <laughs> lots, lots of opinions about that. But, you know, the whole idea here was over-emeshed mother, emotionally distant father. And so they had to fit that into my mind and into my psyche and make me believe it wholeheartedly so that I could then step out. So they even brought my parents to the facility. They, my parents flew across the country to meet with me. And actually, we did family therapy. And it was interesting. And that's all recounted in the book. So please check that out because it's really interesting excerpts because I have the whole journal entries that are really, really long about the meetings that I had with Catherine and Jackie and about how they confronted my parents and what my opinions were about that and how I kind of resolved through that and how the facility really tried to manipulate not just me, but them into this mindset. It was it was truly manipulation across the board on both sides and how they were trying to control. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that, because I did want to bring up the parents thing. I think that's a really interesting direction to take it. It's like, do parents need to read this? I would say this as a parent myself. I feel like the more you know about being a better parent, the better you can be at being a parent. And when you understand that there are unscrupulous individuals and people and facilities out there who will take advantage of your lack of information and who will try to manipulate you, you can be a better parent. So go ahead. Can I jump in? Yes. So, so the other thing I want to mention is they literally shushed us in sessions and tried to control the narrative of how we actually interacted when my parents were at the facility, which was super interesting. So we did family therapy and like Catherine would actually shush my mom and my dad and me when we were trying to communicate because they were trying to completely control and manipulate the scenario and the situation and how we communicated as a family. So they were literally trying to change the dynamics of our communication at its root. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Yeah. I think, I think, go ahead, Sam. 
I think that's really interesting because it reminds me of my training as a therapist where there were examples of that sometimes needing to be done with families, but it was always interesting because when that was a suggestion for the therapist to help the family, it interesting enough always happened to be under the same lens of the stereotypical uh, mother, father, children, Christian, like all middle-class white family, their values, their ethics. It was very heteronormative and almost like from the idea of everybody's role within the 1940s. And that type of ethics went into the therapy that had those type of modalities. And so it's, it's fascinating to me and it makes sense because if you're going to take this antiquated, inaccurate idea of what makes people gay, oh, an absent father, overbearing mother, it makes sense that the same type of skills you would use from family therapy back then would just be rehashed because that's what they would think would be appropriate here. There's no cultural humility. There's no understanding of maybe this family is different. It's just, oh, it's, it's worked for them back in the 1950s. Let's just reuse it. And I, I'm just fat. It, it makes sense to me that if they're using old ideas there, they would think the old way to fix it would come up here in conversion therapy too. And it sounds like it's still being used from other conversion therapy survivors I've heard of. And now we have some comments to read if you would like. We have one person, Stace says, I think it is extremely helpful for parents. Somebody, oh, Stace says, I'm so very proud of Seth. Hi, Wes. And then the facility took advantage. They knew exactly how to coerce and manipulate them. Would you agree or disagree with that? Oh, I agree. They knew what they were doing. But then they also didn't know what they were doing. So I think maybe, like, I think, so like, I, like, maybe I go back and forth on that. Like, I think that they, I think that they were flying by the seat of their pants, but they knew how to manipulate. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it makes sense if you think homosexuality is an addiction, like many of them do, then they would think that that way to force you to live a specific way would be appropriate. Because like you said, your life was in shambles. And we need to tell you how you're supposed to live. And when you think homosexuality is an addiction, just like a substance addiction, then they would use that fix for the same problem. The problem is that it's not a problem. And so that's why nothing ever works. I also have to ask, like, when you talk about the addiction portion of it, you know, do you think it's truly effective to like completely disregard the underlying trauma and the conflict that you were experiencing where you started like utilizing alcohol as a coping skill was like, is, is that truly long-term effective or is it a band-aid? Let me get clarification. Is what a band-aid? When you are talking about somebody who is utilizing alcohol as a coping skill because their life has spiraled out of control mm -hmm. and they continue to use alcohol as a coping skill and they feel like they have nowhere to turn, but they've experienced like all of these underlying things, these messages, this trauma that tells them they're unworthy of being and they're wrong for existing. Is it truly effective to only address the alcohol addiction and not address the underlying trauma? So that is literally the argument behind it all. Because how do you, how, how do you, mm -hmm. how do you address the alcohol problem without addressing the other? The only problem is it shouldn't be done from the perspective that you need to change. It should be done from the perspective that you need to accept yourself and that you are worthy, valuable, and loved. That, that's, that, that's the, that's the catch. Yeah. That also makes me think of a difference between a first order change and a second order change. If it's a facility that's specifically addressing addiction, they, they want to get you to conform. They're going to be very harsh because they want your behavior to change. 
if they were to actually solve the problem so it never came back again, they'd be addressing a full change, a change dealing with all of that trauma so you don't need the coping skill in the first place. So now their only option is to give you a first order change of your behavior only because you'd have to be a lot more humanistic, a lot more listening, a lot less coercive if you want a full person healing. I think um, sometimes we really have to look at that in its, in its entirety and actually understand how people change and how we cope with things because sometimes we employ maladaptive coping skills. And when we do that, it's not necessarily because, oh, we, we just, we just love alcohol. It's, it's, or whatever it is. Like if we're going out and, and self-harming or like stuff like that, like, again, it's not necessarily because that's what we want to do and where we want to be. It's because we, we've, literally internalize the messages of unworthiness, the messages of being wrong for existing and the messages of we need to not be this way and we have to change fundamentally who we are as a person in order to be accepted and to feel a sense of belonging and to have a sense of community in the world. So if you can provide a sense of safety a sense of acceptance, a sense of community, a sense of belonging. You have already done a ton of work for that person to be able to navigate their life and start to learn new coping skills that maybe serve them better than the ones that they previously employed. And if I'm wrong in that, please correct me. No, you're not wrong. Um, you're, you're not incorrect at all. I, I mean, I think that when we look at the way that we're coping, maladaptive coping strategies are literally a way of survival. And for so many people, we don't know other ways of coping. And what I want to talk about specifically is that when we have these maladaptive coping strategies, oftentimes what we're looking at is conditioning. Um, conditioning that happened from a very young age and it, it's continued to happen. There's never been a chance to actually change that conditioning. And therefore, we continue down that pattern of behavior, not knowing any different and seeking out answers and solutions to our problems without having the capacity for, for more growth. And that's where finding new strategies, finding new skills, finding new things to do is so important. Um, and Stace just mentioned in the chat here, you know, we have generational conditioning and that is so key. I mean, I think a lot of these things can actually be done on a very um, generational line um, within families and within family structures um, of things that are passed down from generation to generation that that result in maladaptive coping strategies as well. I think it also brings up the idea that coping mechanisms are there to help you survive. But if your environment doesn't change, what makes you think that you need a different coping skill? It may be destructive, but if your underlining environment is still just as homophobic or still just as racist or, or whatever you know, problem you're trying to solve with your behavior, if the problem is still there, you can get a, a different skill that's maybe less harmful, but the problem is still there. And so it's really hard to try to help someone feel safe, like it's okay to let go of, the, of something that makes them safe when they're still not safe. Yeah. I, I, I think that's really, really important. Also, like, <clears throat> we're about to wrap this up. So I, I have one final question for Seth. Do you have a question or anything, Sam? No? Okay. So my final question for Seth is, you know, is there anything you would say to someone who might be experiencing some of the things you wrote about? Yes. In fact, can you give me a second? Sam, sure. are you sure there's nothing you want to talk about here? There's, um, I was going to read you a section of my book uh, really quickly. But if there's anything I want, well, yeah, I'll just say buy the book. It's, it's literally, I have an entire line, an entire paragraph in my book that addresses this. 
But if you are struggling and if you are finding yourself in a difficult place, what I really want to encourage is that you are loved. You are valuable. No one can tell you uh, what to do. Not your friends, not your family, not your church. It is a decision that you have to make. However, please know that whatever decision you make, you are worthy, you are valuable, and you don't deserve the trauma that is going to happen to you if you go down this path. So know that there are people that have gone down this path before you and are here to shine you a light so that you don't have to go down this path yourself because you are worthy and valuable for exactly for who you are right now and you do not need to change. Thank you. Do you have any parting thoughts, Sam? I just want to thank you for the book. Just so many parts of it, especially just the format of where you read something and then you almost decompress it. I feel like if nothing else, I mean, there's a lot of good things about that, but I, I think right now the, the thing that I love most about it is that you're going to, if you're a trauma survivor, you're going to be reactivated by what you're reading. And the fact that you give a, a space at the end to like reevaluate from a therapist lens almost is like, hey, I brought up this trauma, now let's heal it. Let's affirm that this shouldn't have happened to you. And not only is that more digestible, but I think it almost kind of heals you in the way that you need to almost as if you were in a therapy session with an actual therapist who actually listened and validated you. Right. <laughs> and, so, and plus I know that like finding a therapist is so difficult for so many people. It can just be out of the realm of their insurance or so many other factors and barriers to seeing a therapist. And I feel like for a lot of people where finances are a limitation for them to see an adequate therapist, this is going to be an amazing tool if they get it. So thank you. Thank you, Sam. Saying that. And now uh, I, I would like to say, like, I'm, thank you both for being here. I'm really honored to be able to have these conversations. It, it means a lot to me. And uh, to anybody who's listening, if you're struggling with these types of feelings and these types of experiences, I would just echo what Seth said. You are worthy. You are worthy just the way you are, even if you're not perfect, even if you're not, you know, doing everything that people expect you to do. You're still worthy. You're a whole valid human being and you deserve to have happiness and joy in life. And now I'd like to read my actual review of Seth's book. Are we ready? Did you grab your hat, Seth? You don't have a I'm hat. I'm trembling. I'm trembling. <laughs> Congratulations. You did it. You shared so many things that are familiar to me, the monitoring, the conflict, the shame, and the control exerted over your movements in the program. To me, the most prevalent theme throughout your experience is that your belief that being gay is a sin caused conflict. You sought answers and were given conflicting messages without answers, which possibly compounded the internal conflict you were having. I'd be remiss if I didn't point out the coercive control that was presented to you as well. It was underlying but present throughout the stay. The idea that if you are gay, you must not be praying right or have surrendered fully to God or even have adequate amount of faith is religious trauma. Spiritualizing things and making it about demons and Satan is also slightly degrading to bodily autonomy when it comes to normal life experiences. The victim blaming that went on is quite frankly something that knows no boundaries within group, some groups of people. No one deserves that. No one. Overall, I would give it five stars. Well done. We'll recommend. Your book is a story of struggle, an experience born of desperation to not be gay because of the beliefs you were taught to hold, not only about yourself, but about anyone who is gay. The world needs to hear your voice and heed the dangers of unqualified people doing things they shouldn't be doing. The action steps to be taken could include ensuring that people understand biblical counseling may not mean licensed or qualified for the services the facility is providing. But you, you found a way to get through the messages that told you you should be unworthy. And if anything is good, it was God. 
Not only did you get through it, you found your way of making peace with the trauma you endured, and that is key. Whether you ever have that long-term relationship or not, it sounds like you made your life meaningful for you, and that is absolutely beautiful. Praying the gay away doesn't work. Surrender, surrendering to acceptance of who you are and living in authenticity can be freeing in ways we might never have dared to dream of. And I am honored that you have shared this book. I am honored that you have had these conversations that we've been having. It is immensely just, it's helpful and I'm grateful for it. Thank you all for listening. And I hope everybody has a beautiful day.